It's almost as if Shakespeare is asking himself, how bad can it get for humans? Let's write a play in which it gets as bad as it can get. People are living in mud. People have, have had their eyes gouged out. A king has gone from being a king to being a, a naked wretch. There's civil war, there's contention, people murdering each other. Even at this moment, are we just animals? I think, I'm kind of like whispering now. I think the answer that sh the play hints at is no. That there is still, even in our basest moments, and Homo sapiens can get pretty base, there is something in us, or at least in enough of us, that is heavenly, as Albany says, that is a kind of divine something. And I think that's a lot of times how we translate history. We, we focus on all the terrible mm. things that happen, and we don't really focus on the little noble things that happen. And I think that's one way that we kind of mess ourselves up, right? Like Lear sees humanity as animalistic because he doesn't get to, he doesn't allow himself to see the little no noble moments that are happening mm. around him. Um, like Kent coming back in disguise to help him. Like that's a little noble moment. That's such a good thing and could give you hope in humanity. Hello again. In today's recording, I'll be chatting with Sally about Act 3 of King Lear. But first, I thought I would share a quote about reading for pleasure. That's one of the things that I want to heavily emphasize in this course. The quote is from Albert Einstein, who once said this about the importance of reading classical literature. Somebody who reads only newspapers and at best books of contemporary authors looks to me like an extremely nearsighted person who scorns eyeglasses. He is completely dependent on the prejudices and fashions of his time, since he never gets to see or hear anything else. And what a person thinks on his own without being stimulated by the thoughts and experiences of other people is even in the best case rather paltry and monotonous. There are only a few enlightened people with a lucid mind and style and with good taste within a century. What has been preserved of their work belongs among the most precious possessions of mankind. Unsurprisingly, given the source, I find this an extremely smart thing to say. We sometimes think that only contemporary authors can say anything of value to us in our contemporary moment. This is not true at all. In fact, perhaps the opposite is more true. Great contemporary writers are rare, just as great writers have been rare at any time. Luckily, we have this thing called history, and we can gather together all of the great writers of the past and accumulate an extremely valuable collection of what Einstein calls very precious commodities. The poet T.S. Eliot once argued that all art exists simultaneously. In other words, there is no such thing as time. Shakespeare is not old. He is timeless. He is for all time. He is one of your and one of my most precious possessions. And for more on how and why, let's go into that chat about Act 3 of King Lear with me and Sally. Hi, Sally. Hello, how are you? Good, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you great. So um, we're strangers to each other, but hello, my name hello. is Michael. I, <laughs> I kind of love having conversations with near strangers about these books. I'm hoping that you won't stay a stranger very long. I mean, I'm looking forward to getting to know you and all of the students. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's nothing worse than small talk. So it's great to like meet a person and, you know, hey, let's talk about King Lear and parenting. <laughs> yeah, and talk about anger and, and generation. We should talk about the storm. We should talk about the poor naked wretches bit. We should talk about the, the blinding of Gloucester and, of course, anything else that you wanted to talk about. 
Act three, scene one. How does this act begin? Remind myself. So the act is like Kent and a gentleman. They just meet in the storm and Kent's trying to figure out who this gentleman is. And then he sends him on a message to sends a message with him to Cordelia. Yeah. So that we start to get that's right. We start to get the first hints that not all is well here in this kingdom and that there are forces kind of massing off the horizon, yeah. you know, good forces and bad forces, right? This, this is important. I don't think we need to spend much more time in scene one, although the gentleman says, so Kent says, where's the king? And then the gentleman says, contending with the fretful elements. And I love what the gentleman says later. He says, he str- Lear, king, the king, strives in his little world of man to outscorn the to and fro conflicting wind and rain. This night, wherein the cub-drawn bear would couch, the lion and the belly-pinched wolf keep their fur dry. Unbuttoned, he runs and bids what will take all. I don't know. Sally, up till now in the play, let me just ask you this general question. What is your opinion about Lear? We Slightly unfair question because we haven't met to talk about Act 1. You haven't haven't heard the podcast about Act 2. But you've read this, you know. So what do you think about Lear and... Yeah, what do you think about Lear so far as a person? I feel like, yeah, I, in the first act, I really did not like him. I was just mad at him. I was like, what are you doing? Like, Cordelia yeah. is the only sane person here. And he just, like, kicks her out, and he's getting mad at everybody. And I felt like he was just driven by his emotions rather than, like, reasoning, which goes about against, like, basically everything you learn about in society. It's like, you don't let yourself be driven by anger. But I kind of like how real he is at allowing himself to express his emotions. And there were times where he's like, I can't do this right now. I need to be patient. Mm. But then he still like lets it go. Um, but in this this act specifically, I kind of start feeling bad for him. And I think that's probably because Kent and um, Edgar start feeling bad for him as well. They see something in him like he's losing something. He's losing his sanity. So yeah. I didn't like him, but I'm like starting to sympathize with him as I'm seeing the interactions with him with everybody else yeah my reaction is the same i he's so flawed in act one i mean that might be a big understatement he's just so i think you put it the best he's so uh he's he's not in control of himself what's in control are his emotions and his emotions are so volatile Mm -hmm. yeah so not only does act three begin to depict him as more sympathetic and more vulnerable he's suddenly super vulnerable there's something I admire a little bit about him, and that is his, I guess he, he calls it, I think in Act 2, he calls it his noble anger. Mm-hmm. You kind of alluded to this, where you admired his willingness to use his emotions. I, I don't know if that's exactly how you phrased it, but he's so daring and courageous that he would go wander the wilderness on nights when even the bears and the wolves are hiding in their dens. Yeah. He's so fearless in a way, and of course there's a bad version of that, but there is something that gets me to admire him a little bit in this blasting at the elements. You know what I mean? I don't know. Maybe that's crazy. No, I like it. And I think just like the weather that's playing this whole scene, I think really matches the way Lear's feeling. And that's probably the reason there's a massive storm going on at the same time, right? We get Lear's, he's trying to hide like the anger in himself by like experiencing the storm. But even this crazy massive thing that's happening, all that he can focus on is just the, pain inside his head so like he's experiencing so much physical pain but it's all just in his head as well yeah that's really great i couldn't exactly put my finger on where he says this but doesn't he say this somewhere the storm outside is nothing compared to what he's feeling Mm -hmm. on the inside um scene two 
Scene two begins. Blow wind and crack your cheeks. Rage, blow, you cataracts and hurricanoes. Spout till you have drenched our steeples. Drown the cocks. You sulfurous and thought-executing ex fires. Vaunt couriers of oak-cleaving thunderbolts. Singe my white head. And thou all-shaking thunder. Strike flat the thick rotundity of the world. Crack nature's molds. All Germans... Strange, because we hear the, you know, the nation Germans, but <laughs> seeds, germination, yeah. you know. All Germans spill at once that make ingrateful man. I guess what I admire here is his willingness to stand up to creation itself, you know. He's battling the elements. He's defying heaven. And of course, there is a bad version of that. But there is, he's like, he's a man who is hopelessly confronting a hostile universe. Yeah. And yeah. he's enduring it only through sheer bravado and rage you know what i mean mm -hmm. and like guys for all of his flaws there is something admirable in a person who's willing to um confront yeah the, the struggles of existence head on you know yeah yeah uh. i really like right after that so he gives that speech and then the fool gives a little bit but then he talks about how like he's fine being beaten down by the elements like they can abuse him as much as they want because he doesn't owe them anything and they don't mm. owe him anything and he's like but my daughters they owe me a lot but they're still beating against me like he's applying his situation to everything that's happening around him why why can you fight against me and not my children which I thought it, was really interesting. There are many ways that a human can suffer in this world. Many, many ways, you know? Uh, we, we, can, we can cause suffering on ourselves. Other people can cause us suffering. And of course, the elements can cause us suffering. But he doesn't spite the, the elements for causing him this kind of yeah. suffering because it's like, well, he gets it. This is part of being alive. Like, I don't know you anything. You don't know me anything. So I can't be mad at you. Mm -hmm. This is part of existence. This is part of being. And there's something admirable about that honesty and his unwillingness to condemn them but yeah, yeah, his sisters, as you say, sorry, not his sisters, his daughters, as you say, um, he gave them everything, you know, he gave them everything. And they, so yeah. Is he more sinned against than sinning? Later in this scene, he says. Yeah, I think it's line like 54, 55-ish. That's right. I'm a man more sinned against than sinning. What do you think about that? Again, his ability to assess the situation accurately is extremely flawed. Yeah. <laughs> And I talked with my wife in the first podcast about how he doesn't know himself. He's so unaware. Is this another symptom of that? Do you think that there's any way in which this is true? Who is the most responsible for this mess that he's found himself in? I I really don't know. Because, like, the fool thinks it's all his fault, right? Like, the mm. fool's like, why did you give everything to your daughters? Like, a snail doesn't give up his house. So the fool definitely thinks it's all his fault. And Lear kind of thinks it's all his daughter's fault. And I feel like you get like Kent in the middle. Who's like, it's kind of both of your faults, right? Like Kent is mad at the daughters, but also mad at Lear in a way. I feel like Kent kind of sees it the best out of all of them. So I think I kind of have to side with him and be like, it's, it's partially both of their faults. The daughters were not as loyal as they should have been. And Lear gave them the power to kind of ruin him. Yeah. Um, you can't put, pin it all on one party. They all are acting in a way that causes all of this to happen. I, no, I, I, I totally agree. And I love your um, assessment that Kent is the person with who seems to have the most wisdom or the most objectivity. There's enough blame to go around. You know, and Kent knows that. He calls Lear out on his behavior in Act 1. Uh, he's certainly an enemy to Goneril and Regan for the way that they're treating him. I mean, the way that they're treating Lear. 
So yeah, you must be right. Kent is the person through whom we're getting the hint that Shakespeare wants us to see how morally nuanced and muddled all of this is. Yeah. Um, so when Lear says, I am a man more sinned against than sinning, I mean, maybe he's right, but maybe this is still a symptom of it's not really all my fault yet. You yeah. Know, I think we'll see later in the play that he makes other statements that show yet more moral progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe there's a little bit here because he doesn't say I have not sinned. Yeah. <laughs> it's just I've been sinned against more than I have sinned. So I don't know. Baby steps. Could we call this baby yeah. steps to moral improvement? I don't know. He's allowing the fact that he's made mistakes. I think in like this scene and then just like a bit farther down, he starts realizing how many flaws he's had just hopping all the way to like later in scene three when he's talking to Edgar, I think. Um, he's like, he's like seeing Edgar in all of his pity and like, he's yes. acting crazy and all naked. And Lear begins regretting what he didn't do for the poor, yeah. which I thought was interesting. He's, he's making this progress through this storm scene. Of, it's all about him. And then he starts seeing Edgar in his situation and realizing like, it's not just me that's struggling. It's other people as well. That's an extremely crucial moment. But before we leave scene two, just, I think it's important to notice what Lear says near the end of that scene. Lear says, my wits begin to turn. Mm. And then he says to the fool, come on, my boy, how dost, my boy, art cold? I am cold myself. And I know this isn't much. I don't want to make too much out of this, but he is recognizing the suffering in others because, and the suffering in himself. Maybe before he was only recognizing the suffering in himself. But now he's like, I am cold. And therefore, maybe that means this other person in front of me is also cold. And he's like genuinely inquiring. He's a glimmer. It's a tiny little glimmer of interest in another human mm-hmm. or pain. This comes into full fruition, as you say, in scene four. So this is act three, scene four. Let's go there now. Um, what's the best way to get into this? Where should we start? <laughs> Again, he, so this is scene four line, maybe like 14. Again, he rails against filial ingratitude. This is like the fourth or fifth time that Lear uses the word ingratitude or thankless. He's very fixated on this. Mm-hmm. This is his own diagnosis of the sins of his daughters. What is so bad about ingratitude? Why is this, a, uh, should I call it a sin? I guess I'll call it a sin that is so egregious. Like if you, you know, if you were to like Dante and were to make layers of sin, like a hierarchy of sin, you know, it seems like Lear thinks ingratitude is the worst. Yeah. Do we also, why is it the worst for him? What's so bad about it? Yeah, I think it's interesting he chooses ingratitude. Like he could call them traitors, honestly. They went against him, but he chooses ingratitude as the word to describe what is happening to him. And I think that's really interesting because I feel like he's, I don't see Lear as any form of godlike character, but like, um, I think he kind of sees himself like he's a king, right? He should be receiving that gratitude for from his subjects. And I mean, my parents probably expect gratitude from me, right? Like right. I should be giving them gratitude. And I think that's just something you spend so much time investing in people as a parent or a teacher or God or King, like you spend so much time about them. Um, you kind of want them to return the favor, you know, right. like it's kind of expected that they'll at least acknowledge what you've done for them. And I think Lear is feeling like 
all of the good things that he did for his daughters was unacknowledged. He did all of this good and they didn't care about it. And I think that would really hurt, right? Like if I do something for somebody and they don't acknowledge it, that's offensive kind of. Like It is. And it really rankles, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Lear is not God. I mean, he's so utterly flawed, but he is in a slightly analogous. I mean, there, there are many analogies to what God is to us, you know, yeah. the parents of a family, et cetera, et cetera any position of authority over any group of people, you know, has similar responsibilities. So Lear is God of his kingdom and he's divested all of his kingdom to his daughters. You know, we learned that in act one, he's given it all up as a good King should when he gets old and feeble. Now is now my time is over quite self-sacrificing. Now my time is over. Here you go. This is what parents should do for their children. Like, you know, the good American work work ethic, you know, you you work hard all your life, you get a little nest egg, you retire, you, you know, try to make the lives of your children slightly better than your own life. Mm-hmm. You let them inherit the benefits of your hard work. And I think in situations like this, whether it's a parent or a god or a king, what is expected isn't that the child or the subject returns equally what he or she has been given, because that's mm-hmm. not possible. Yeah. All that's expected is thank you. That's all. This, it's like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what you've been given. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is open your mouth and say thank you to acknowledge it. You know, it's like you know when you make someone a casserole because maybe they just had a baby or something. You're not waiting for a return casserole. I mean, maybe you get one. It's <laughs> like just you know, just like a nod the next time you're at church. Just like oh, thank you. You know, just thank you. If they said nothing, it would start to. It would. I mean, this. You know. You should, we should all be above such things, but it would start to fester. Yeah. It's so, maybe this is why it's so egregious to Lear is because gratitude is so easy. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to do. Yeah. So f- to have it not be done when it's steamed, when it's necessary is like, <laughs> I'm not asking for much. You know, I'm really, yeah. really not asking for much. Okay. So yeah, filial ingratitude. He rails against that. Oh, this is very interesting. Actually, we should back up a little bit. We should go to the very end of scene three because, you know, Edmund is plotting against his father. Yeah. Trying to throw his brother Edgar under the bus. And Edmund ends scene three of act three with, I think, some interesting words. He says, and they're sending these letters back and forth. He says, this courtesy forbid thee shall the Duke instantly know. And of that letter too, this seems a fair deserving and must draw me that which my father loses, no less than all. Now here's the key line. The younger rises when the old doth fall. This is Edmund's pronouncement on the relationship between the generations that as far as he's concerned, the only way for the younger to rise is for the old to fall. Mm -hmm. Lear has a different opinion. This is directly followed in scene four by Lear saying, is it not as this mouth should tear this hand for lifting food to it? Right? So an ingrateful child is like a hand it's like biting it's like, that feeds you. That's right. It's like a mouth biting the hand that tries to feed it. So in Edmund's world, the, the generations are fundamentally opposed and constantly fighting. But in Lear's worldview, they're all different parts of one body. Mm-hmm. I find this very interesting. I mean, do you have any instinct about who is depicting the relationship between the generations more accurately? I mean, of course, Edmund, you're not going to want to say Edmund, of course. because you know he's so evil but it's certainly possible that his worldview has some truth to it you know so yeah what's your take on this I mean I personally think you should not attack the generation before you right you're building off of their shoulders Mm. you shouldn't tear down your foundation that's a bad idea but I can 
definitely see that the mentality of like the younger rises when the old doth fall, right? The whole social media trend of like mocking boomers, which <laughs> we're tearing down a whole generation and yeah. that it's turning into a battle. I mean, the boomers aren't really fighting back on social media, but <laughs> we're kind yeah. of doing that. And I think it makes me frustrated. I'm like, but they're set, like they did so much good that yeah. helped our society. Like, yes, they did bad things because they're human, but like, that's right. <laughs> They, they really made our world the world to live in, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I love this answer. I love this answer a lot. And I love the example of the boomers. But this is not a unique phenomenon. I mean, you know, it's like the hippie generation railed against their parents. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think every younger generation rails against the previous one. Uh, so we're just fall, falling into... Yeah. I, I say we. I am, I think, technically a millennial. I mean, it depends <laughs> on... Because not, not, nobody cares. We should move on, but... You know, you Google like what what dates you have to be born into count. I think I technically just squeaked in, uh, but now there's Gen Z and all this stuff. Um, anyway, yeah, this this battle between the generations is always being fought. It's not new, and but you're very smart to point out, Sally, that yeah, and we're going to talk about this more tomorrow in class. Actually, um, of course, we can't be ignorant about the sins of the previous generation, but we we should not ever forget, you know, their virtues and their 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 what they have bestowed. To us, I think really that is the heart. To now to zoom way out, that is the heart of this play. I mean, Cordelia and Lear, and in the other family, Gloucester and Edgar and Edmund, have to learn how to break ties with the bad aspects of the past, mm-hmm. while also embracing the past because they acknowledge that it gives them life. You know? Yeah. So that's great. Um, and then Lear says this, but I will punish home. No, I will weep no more. In such a night to shut me out, pour on. I will endure, which I love. Why do I love that? I don't know. I just think it's a very courageous response to suffering. I mean, yeah. granted, lo- lots of the suffering is self-imposed, but it's kind of strength in that insistence on enduring and not lamenting like, oh, why? woe is me, you know? Yeah. I mean, he does that plenty. He does woe is me plenty. but he Indeed. Ends- no, you're so right. But he ends with, it's, I'm done now. Like, I'm done ranting. <laughs> it's time to move on. That's excellent. That's an excellent thing to point out. Yeah, he's never, and we'll, we'll see this even much later in the play, at the height of his moral epiphanies, he's still showing glimpses of the same old, you know, <laughs> murderously angry f- fool. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he, the moral prog- this is important. This is really important. I should, like, be keeping notes of this somewhere in a document, but... <laughs> This play is teaching us a really important lesson about moral progress, which is that it's never absolute. You know, it, mm-hmm. yes, moral progress is possible, but it moral progress is possible while still making the same old mistakes we've always made. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. His moral progress, I feel like, starts when he says that he's going mad. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? <laughs> like, he's like, I'm going mad. Let's think about other people now. Which I think is interesting. Like, maybe he's not going mad. Maybe just the way his mind's like, he's he starts seeing things in a new light. And his, his mind's like, oh, like, this is way different than anything I've ever done before. So we must be going crazy. But maybe he's just focusing on something different, right? <laughs> like, Absolutely. I mean, isn't it in Act 3? I'm now trying to find it. I guess maybe it's not. I guess maybe it's in Act 4. It's hard to keep these acts straight. Yeah. Um, later in Act 4, he'll, he will say more or less exactly what you just said. He will say that his daughters, he spent his whole life being flattered by his daughters and by those around him who convinced him that he was invulnerable and that he was perfect. 
so he believed that his entire life, you know, but he's now finally at the very end of his life learning. This is not true. He's not perfect. He's deeply flawed. He's not invulnerable. He's weak and he's frail. So act three, scene four, um, they're like trying to get him to enter this hut, this hovel. Kent says, good, my Lord, enter here. And then Lear, you know, pretty go in thyself, seek thine own ease. No, after you, you know, (laughs) it's a superficial gesture. I grant that, but it is, it is an emblem of courtesy. Yeah. And I mean, a king doing that is saying something. (laughs) Precisely. Precisely. It's not just any old person on the street holding the door open. He used to be the king. I mean, he kind of still is, I guess. So this is like, this might be extreme moral progress for him. Prithee, go in thyself, seek thine own ease, you know? And again, to the fool, he says the same thing. In boy, go first. Wow, this is quite selfless. And they're seeing this hovel, like all these poor people, all these beggars, Tom Bedlam especially. And this, yeah, you you, you foreshadowed this. You, you, you primed us for this, Sally. This is one of the best moments in the play. He kneels in prayer. What might the significance of that stage direction be? Why is Shakespeare having him do that as opposed to just stand there saying these words? Rather than just monologuing to the audience, he's talking to God. I think it's showing that Lear's going past himself. Like it's not just him and his his thinking in his own head anymore, which has been the past two scenes, right? It's just Lear monologuing. Mm. But we get this where he's not just trying to process what's happening to him. He's telling telling God, like, this is what's happening to me. And I'm realizing like what I could have been doing better. Yeah. I don't know. I think turning to God is definitely showing like he's getting out of his own head and out into the world, if that makes Excellent. any sense. <laughs> it totally does. And what Lear says right after this corroborates exactly what you just say. I also think physically the act of kneeling up till now, he doesn't strike me as that kind of guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So again, it is the sign of some real progress he's acknowledging some other higher authority he's humbling himself yeah it's really it's not nothing it's really not nothing so he kneels in prayer and then he says this poor naked wretches i should pause after those three words i mean it's just classic mourning with those that mourn you know seeing the pain of others and feeling i always get empathy and sympathy and compassion slightly confused i think that might mean slightly different things but it's certainly in that ballpark you know he's being touched, moved by the pain of others. Poor naked wretches. I love what comes next. Wheresoe'er you are. And it's so simple that you might just slip right by it. Granted, it's not it's not to be or not to be. It's not like the best thing in Shakespeare's, you know, collected <laughs> works. It's just this wonderful little subtle detail that I love because you just said his thoughts, his thinking, his mind, now we see it go out of himself. Mm-hmm. This is proof of that. He sees these poor people in front of him and then he's like, oh, but there could be people that are poor and naked anywhere. Yeah. Like every, maybe they're everywhere. He sees these people and he is compassionate towards them, but then he imagines the potential for all of this suffering in the world far away, you know, maybe far away, which again is another not insignificant leap wheresoever you are. It's one thing to feel compassionate for the homeless person that you have to awkwardly sit beside at that stoplight, mm-hmm. you know, but it's another, per- it's another, it's another level of empathy to say people on the other side of the world who are in pain right now. Yeah. I just love this speech. I, I really like where he talks about, Oh, I have tamed too little care of this. Yeah. 
he he realizes that he had so much power that he could have done something to help these people. He doesn't have it anymore, so he can't really do anything about it. But he realizes like, snap, I kind of goofed up. Like there was a yeah. lot of stuff I could have been doing that I, I didn't get. So he's regretting ignoring these issues as he ruled, which I I really like. I feel like that's a realization that in I feel like in most of Shakespeare's plays, he has like the higher wealthier people like realize, oh, I could be doing a lot more, but I didn't realize that it needed to be done. Right. So I really like how he has that realization. I could have done more. And I think it kind of helps us realize like, oh, I'm in a position to do more. That's great. It oh, I have taken too little care of this. So maybe an important ingredient of any type of moral progress is, you know, self. I mean, this is why, you know, confession exists. You know, we confess our sins. We have to acknowledge wrong. Self-critique, self-assessment. Take physic pomp. You know, the footnotes help us here. Take medicine, that's what physic means, and pomp, just any anyone in authority, power. You know, so people in People in power are diseased, and the disease they have is they lack empathy because yeah. they're kind of walled in you know, a citadel of luxury. Mm-hmm. So the cure for that disease is to expose. So he says, take physic pump, expose thyself to feel what wretches feel. Wow. That thou mayest shake the superflux to them and show the heavens more just. Superflux meaning any extra, you know, give them all the extra. Yeah. I think this is so suddenly there's like a glimpse, like a door in Lear's brain opens mm-hmm. <laughs> into moral wisdom. I mean, maybe it closes again, yeah. but for a moment it's open. Kings. What, what is a good King? A, a King is a good King is a person who exposes himself to feel the pain and poverty and deprivation of his subjects. I also love what comes before this too. So he says, Poor naked wretches, wheresoe'er you are that bide the pelting of this pitiless storm, how shall your houseless heads and unfed sides, your looped and windowed raggedness, defend you from seasons such as these? He's really living in this thought experiment. Yeah. It's so beautiful. I think it's so beautiful. He takes responsibility. He admits wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. So if we're making a document about how to live, you know, how should we live? Take responsibility. When you do wrong things, don't pretend you didn't, you know, admit that you did. Take responsibility. Okay, what next? What next should we highlight in this scene? Um, poor Tom. How weird is poor Tom? As a reader, how do you respond to the bizarreness? It's so utterly bizarre. It just, it shakes me when I realize that it's really Edgar, right? Like every time it says Edgar in my script, where it's like, Edgar's saying this, but then he calls himself Tom and it's like, why did Edgar choose such a character for himself? Why did he make him so, so bizarre? And so this is a very good question. Crazy. Like so sin fills. Like he talks about all of the, the sins that his character has committed. Like I was a serving man and I was super lustful and I drink all the time and like all of these sins and I'm followed by devils. Like that's why right. I'm possessed by all these demons. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that just made me I was like wow Edgar you really got into that character and you really chose a really awful person <laughs> like <laughs> it's a little bit too method you know what I mean it's a little bit too much method acting but you uh, you ask a very good question this is a question I had not asked myself and I would not know exactly how to answer but can I ask you to answer your own question I mean he could have just chosen any old beggar he could have chosen like a kind subdued kind of monkish type beggar 
mm-hmm. you know, who just quietly asks for alms and, you know, prays to God and stuff. But no, he's chosen this extremely, is satanic too strong a word? <laughs> uh, flamboyantly frightening, devilish. I mean, yeah, I don't know what I would say, but why? Why? Um, I think maybe he's trying to get as far away from his other self as possible. Mm. Him being a good, righteous, faithful, dutiful son didn't pay him any favors. So maybe he's trying the complete opposite of it. Just take I like him that. as far out of his situation as possible. I think it, it, he says it some at some point in time. Um, he talks about how like he feels bad for Lear. And he realizes all of the things that happened to him because of his daughters. And like, I'm having all of these trials because of my father, but they are not anything compared to Lear's trials. Lear is going mad because of what's happening. And Tom's pretending to be mad. I was kind of thinking of like, maybe Edgar chose to go crazy because he thought that should be the reaction to what happened to him. And then that's really what happened to Lear. Does that make sense? Wow. No, it totally does. You've said about eight brilliant things there. We don't have time to unpack them, but it's great what you say about how, Ed, yeah, maybe Edgar is a little bit too good. He, I mean, d- d- he doesn't, I mean, we don't really get to know him very much, so yeah. I'm sure he has flaws of his own, but we don't learn about any of his flaws. He seems like a good son, slightly maybe too easily duped. Yeah. Um, but we get the impression that he's lived a very good and moral, you know, and, and upstanding life. And you're absolutely right. That scene in, in Act Two where he's like Edgar, I nothing am. He goes out into the woods. I've I've tried it the good way, and look what it's gotten me. Yeah. So maybe I'll try it a different way. Maybe I'll do the the crazy, sinful, wild man, lunatic. Mm-hmm. And you know, it can only get better. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, if we're starting at nothing again, it can only get better. That's a great answer. But no, there's this one. And then another great thing you said was that there's this wonderful irony about Lear is going mad. Edgar's pretending to be mad. Yeah, I wonder if, I mean, this is a half-baked thought. It's going to involve me staring out the window a lot, so I won't (laughs) inflict that on you. But um, you could be right to say, I mean, I don't want to minimize Lear's suffering. Regan, at the end of Act 2, closes the door. He's out. He he leaves. Regan closes the door, more or less knowing that it's kind of fatal weather out there. So Lear has it bad. I don't really want to get into these contests about, you know, who is suffering more, Edgar or Lear. They're both suffering a lot. Um, so your question and your answer have now prompted new questions for me, which is why I love these as dialogues. Why doesn't Edgar actually go mad? You know, what is it that's, and this is a question I don't, we're like talking one step into the dark at a time, you know, I don't know the answer. We're not confused that Lear actually goes mad. He's suffering immensely and he's very old. Edgar's suffering a lot too. The whole kingdom is after him because they think he's a traitor. They're going to execute him. He now has to live in mud. He's like eating bats or, you know, or, or at least he says he is some horrible thing. Why doesn't he lose his mind? What is it about Edgar's character that enables him to overcome this? Yeah, I'm trying to think of like the differences between him and Lear. I feel like Edgar didn't allow himself to be controlled by his emotions. I feel like a lot of the things he chose to do were very thought out and methodical. Like when mm. he chose to go live in the wilderness, like he he chose to do it. He wasn't driven by it. And I think Lear allows himself to be driven by his emotions. And I know like that just makes me feel bad in my like psychology mind is like emotions are good. Like they, they, they oh, teach good. you things. Being driven by emotions isn't over an overly bad thing, but I think maybe that's kind of what Shakespeare's trying to say. Letting yourself be driven about by okay. these really strong, passionate things could lead to other things that 
could like could drive you mad. Lear's really strong emotions could have driven him mad, and Edgar had a handle on his emotions, and he didn't go crazy, this even though great. he was acting crazy. <laughs> I'm so happy that we get you know the viewpoints of all kinds of different majors and expertise and fields. Yeah, you're you're right. I mean, emotions aren't bad. We don't want to be robots, you know. In fact, this is the scene in which we start seeing the good effects of emotions: mm-hmm. empathy, sympathy. Yeah. We want when we see somebody suffer, we should feel bad if we don't you know there are there are words for that you know there are therapies to help cure that you know we should feel bad yeah but we don't want to be the slaves of our emotions so balance you know balance 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 okay we should keep going for the sake of time i love how he lear sees tom and he he asks these hilarious but also heartbreaking questions like has his daughters brought him to this pass you know like oh this must be what happened to you it's like doesn't have any daughters and Lear's like no he does this is the only way people can end up like this yeah um I love this bit too so this is act three scene four line about 95 Uh, he's looking at Tom of Bedlam and he says this is man no more than this consider him well thou owest the worm thou so Tom thou owest the worm no silk the beast no hide the sheep no wool the cat no perfume ha Here's three ons are sophisticated. So him and Gloucester and I guess the fool are sophisticated, right? We have all this, like all these trappings of civilization, you know? Yeah. Thou art the thing itself. Unaccommodated man is no more than such a poor, bare, forked animal as thou art. And then he wants to emulate this. So he starts taking off his clothes. What do you think about this? When you strip a human of everything, all comforts and all clothing, what are we? Are we a poor, bare, forked animal? Is Lear right? What about, you know, these higher faculties that we have, like consciousness, wisdom, you know, even empathy, which mm-hmm. you could argue maybe some animals have, but, you know, maybe not to our degree. At its root, what is a human? Do you, is Lear right? Is this another moral door opening or is he still a little bit misguided? I don't like the idea of people being animals. That just, like, doesn't make my insides happy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we are, I mean, we are, but we aren't. Yeah. Yeah, like I don't like being called an animal. Like the, I don't know, it just turns the wrong knob, right? It just yeah, for sure. I, I don't like that idea of just being call, calling people animals. And even though Tom slash Edgar is crazy and he doesn't really know what he's doing or saying, I I think there's a part of him. If he was just straight Tom and there was no Edgar in there, I think there's still a lot of him that's that can't be described as just animalistic. Yes like consciousness and wisdom are both really important things. Even if Tom had no wisdom, like he was still saying things that opened doors in Mm. Lear's mind and, and you can create the connections with other human beings, even without anything from the world. I don't like the idea of just, we're just animals because so much more to humanity than that. (laughs) It's a great, in fact, later on in the play, this is act four. I think it's Albany. He will say something like, um, actually, because it bears directly on what you just said. So this is act four, scene two, and it's Albany. And, you know, even more bad stuff has happened. So Albany is looking on the state of the kingdom now, you know, a few scenes later, and it's even in worse state. And this is what Albany says. So act four, scene two, line, I don't know, 46 or something. Albany says this. If that the heavens do not their visible spirits send quickly down to tame the vile offenses, it will come. It meaning kind of the end of times. Humanity must perforce prey on itself like monsters of the deep. 
So if heaven doesn't send down some kind of bright messenger, then yeah, we will animalistically devour each other. Yeah. I'm going to be asking, you know, the class later on where the heavenly messengers of this play are. Cause on the surface, it's like, okay, any, any day now, any time now come down, heavenly messengers, help us. But the, I think the play as a whole acknowledges or hints at what you just said. It's almost as if Shakespeare is attempting to get as, and again, I, I want to stress that this is just my one individual's current reaction to the play. It's not the authoritative or correct one, but it's almost as if Shakespeare is asking himself, how bad can it get for humans? Let's write a play in which it gets as bad as it can get. And we haven't even talked about the blinding, which we should do in 30 seconds. <laughs> Let's have it get as bad as it can get. People are living in mud. People have, have had their eyes gouged out. A king has gone from being a king to being a, you know, a naked wretch. There's civil war. There's contention. People murdering each other. Uh, even at this moment, are we just animals? I think I'm kind of like whispering now. I think the answer that the play hints at is no, that there is still, even in our basest moments and homo sapiens can get pretty base. There is something in us, or at least in enough of us that is heavenly, as Albany says, that is a kind of divine something. Yeah. You know, we can, we can look like an animal. We can be living in mud like an animal. We can be eating, you know, live bats like an animal, you know, but that doesn't mean that we are animals. We'll, we'll press pause on that because that, that really isn't fair for scene three. Okay. So before we move on from this unaccommodated man, I can't blame Lear for thinking this, you know, it's, yeah, it's hard not to like look at history and to look at suffering. And it, it, it's such a powerful and convincing argument that we are nothing but animals, no better than animals yeah. as, as base as animals, as cruel as animals, as dispensable as animals. And I know that animals aren't, I don't, you know, I'm not advocating yeah. <laughs> disposing animals, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's not hard to see why Lear would think that. I, mean, I think we all will think that from time to time in our yeah. lives. Anyway, what did you think about this blinding? Uh, I <laughs> it's just, a horrible question, but uh, uh, yeah, what do you think? It made me so mad. I I have like a little sticky note. I'm and it just Reagan just makes me hate her so much. That's all I said. Like I was just so mad. <laughs> Speaking of animal, you know she is. <laughs> You know, she commits acts that, and although it's straightly, it's kind of striking that animals don't do this to each other. Animals don't gouge out the eyes of other animals for fun. I've seen cats treat mice in ways that... I mean, they're, they're prey, right? Like, they're not doing it to other cats just to tear out their eyes and make them be blind. No, you're right. You know? you, like, you're so right. It does, if you survey the natural world, it does seem that humans, only humans torture. Yeah. Which is it, weird. Isn't that weird? That is weird. You're a psychologist. Thoughts about this? <laughs> um, I just was amazed that, especially at the very end where you get the thoughts of like the three, two other servants. So like the first okay. servant tries to stop, um, who is it? Cornwall from tearing out Gloucester's other eye and he dies. But then the two other servants are, they were in the scene the whole time. Um, yeah watching what was happening and they're like i feel terrible at what happened like let's go take care of gloucester now but they they weren't willing enough to like stand up to it and stop yeah. it and this is probably because like in elementary school we talked so much about not being a bystander do not allow bullying to happen while mm. you're watching but like seeing these two servants the only people in this room, we have like Gloucester and then Reagan and Cornwall and the three servants. They're 
what four people that don't want Gloucester to lose his eyes and two people that are trying to get That's out right. his eyes. But the two people got their way. And that just like hurts. <laughs> um, but and yes, Cornwall and Reagan are in a place of authority, but these are Gloucester servants and it's Gloucester's house. Like he should it it just feels so wrong that such a terrible thing should happen to such a good person, you know? Okay. I, this is wow, you've said okay, we have six seven, six minutes. I'm gonna ask you three things. The first one is so in six minutes, I want answers to the following questions. <laughs> Question number one. Yeah, why do bad things happen to good people? That should be easy. You should be able to knock that off in about 10 seconds, right? That's question number one. Question number two is, why does it so often happen that the minority who wants something bad succeeds when there is always a majority? I mean, we began this class by reading um, reading Lolita in Tehran. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on that situation, but there's may have been a large majority of a silent majority who didn't want the revolution to take place, who were against all those crazy authoritarian rules. How does this happen? So that's question number two. So question number one is why do good thing why do bad things happen to good people? Question number two is why do tyrannical minorities so often get power over the majority? Question number three is um this man, the servant who stepped in and risked his life and ended up sacrificing his life. Question number three is, was it worth it? He dies. Gloucester still gets blinded. Yeah. Please answer those questions. Okay, let's go. (laughs) So for the first one, why do bad things happen to good people? I actually just read The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. So there's a whole book on why bad things happen to good people. But I think the main takeaway I took from that was that it helps us grow and that other people have to be able to enact their agency. So Reagan and Cornwall enacted their agency to hurt Gloucester in a way that normal and sane humans should not. But I think that's that's an important part of just why bad things happen. And then yeah. um, second question. It was, uh, uh, why do tyrannical minorities sometimes take over the majority? Take power over majorities? Because you're right. It's like only two people want this. There's a room yeah. full of people who, not full, but yeah, most people don't. I think both Reagan and Cornwall were very set on what they wanted to happen. They knew exactly what they wanted done probably before it happened and everybody else was uninformed. And I think that could be a major driving force. They didn't have time to make up their opinions and Mm. time to decide what they were going to do to react to that situation. And I think indecision is a major part of why bad things happen. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I want you to keep talking, but that's really smart. I mean, if, if, if there's a, kind of tyrannical coup happening in your government, you might think, well, maybe it's not going to get bad. Maybe it's not going to get that bad. So you can just wait. You can hope and mm-hmm. say that if I wait, I, maybe no intervention will be necessary. Too much waiting, of course, we see sometimes what happens with too much waiting. Sorry, keep going. Yeah. And then there's also like the bystander complex where you just expect somebody else to do something. Okay. So you have four people in the room who are like, I don't want to, I don't want to be him to be blinded but somebody else will step up to them. Like right. it's going to have to be me. And eventually one of the servants decided it is going to have to be me because nobody else is standing for up for him. Which leads us right into question number three. Yeah. So we think, well, this is a noble action. This is a noble and virtuous and courageous action. 
should he have made it? Should he have taken it? Even knowing that he dies and does not succeed in helping Gloucester, can we, in hindsight, even say that he made the right choice? Maybe this is a leading question. What do you think? I think I I still applaud him for the action. I think it's the same question of, is it worth doing a good thing because a bad thing might come from it? A bad thing might happen to you if you do this good thing. Are you still going to do it? Are you sa- still going to try and save someone's life because you might get hit by that train? Like, right. are you are you willing to risk yourself to help somebody else? And I think it's still noble and it, he didn't get the outcome that he wanted and the outcome that Gloucester needed, but he still, sh- and he also showed Gloucester that he cared enough yeah. to sacrifice himself for him, which I mean, Gloucester, he, when he walked into the room, he saw those servants, he saw that they were there. And these are people that he's been with for a really yeah. long time. And so he saw them there and he knew that they were bystanders to them putting out his eye. And he's like, these people love me, but they're not standing up for me. And I think that one servant standing up could have given Gloucester more of the focus, just gave him more of a reassurance that like they cared. So I think in a way it helped Gloucester realize how important he was to the servants, even if it wasn't the result that they both wanted. We might be tempted to look at this servant nameless. I think that's important too. Totally anonymous, right? So many acts of heroism and courage go uncelebrated and unpraised and uh, forgot, totally forgotten. You yeah. Know? He, he's, he's, we don't even know his name. He steps in, tries to help, fails and dies. But you're right. Gloucester saw in that moment one of these heavenly spirits that Albany is waiting to come down. Mm-hmm. What else is that act but a manifestation of a kind of divine and courageous sacrifice? Yeah. You know, he in that moment, that servant was one of those heavenly spirits, I think. And Gloucester, I mean, even if Gloucester didn't know, it's, it's you're you're asking the right question, Sally. It's like, should you perform good acts even if they don't end up working? Yes, I think yes. Yeah. You know, I just think you you just need, yeah, I think, yes, you know, let's increase the amount of goodness in the world. Maybe you won't succeed, but if you only committed acts of goodness when you got written guarantees that your actions will succeed, then we would never act. You know what I mean? We just have to do the best we can and hope that they'll work enough times to make some kind of difference. Yeah. Says, you know, again, like take physic pompa. We all need this. This is not something that I have by any means perfected. But so in a, in the bleakest of bleak plays, there are these shining moments of people doing things of complete self-sacrifice and uh, moral courage. And I, it's like so easy to look over this moment in the play. He's not a named person. We don't know who he is. Doesn't come back. He dies. He's not successful. We can't forget this man. I think we just we can't forget him. We, we talked earlier about how um, Lear, looking back on history, would see the really dark things and think that humanity is animalistic, right? Um, and then we also talked about how it's hard to remember this one servant's actions. And I think that's a lot of times how we translate history. We, we focus on all the terrible mm. things that happen, and we don't really focus on the little noble things that happen. Um, and I think that's one way that we kind of mess ourselves up, right? Like, 
Lear sees humanity as animalistic because he doesn't get to, he doesn't allow himself to see the little noble moments that are happening Mm. around him. Like Kent coming back in disguise to help him. Like that's a little noble moment. That's such a good thing and could give you hope in humanity. Right. Like that's so great. Bad and dreary. (laughs) That's so great. I'm going to, I'm going to hold you hostage for another minute, Okay. but it's, but it's your fault because what you just said prompted this. Um, (laughs) I'm going to be sharing a quote with the class tomorrow in class. And it, it's just, it's so relevant to what you just said. I can't help myself right now. So I'm going to find it and I'll read it to you. This is one of my favorite paragraphs ever written. Can you see this? Yep, I can see it. This is, this is from the novel Middlemarch written by George Eliot. And there she is. This is a picture of George Eliot. And this is the very last paragraph of Middlemarch. And what you just said about this nameless servant is so appropriate. So... I'll just read this paragraph and then, you know, in 10 seconds, describe how it relates. Her, so uh, Dorothy, Dorothea Brooks, I think her name is, is the her, the protagonist of this novel. She was a woman who wanted, you know, to like perform great acts of love and charity in the world. She kind of succeeds and kind of doesn't. So at the very end of the novel, this is what we learn about her. Her finely touched spirit had still its fine issues, though they were not widely visible. Her full nature, like that river of which Alexander broke the strength, spent itself in channels which had no great name on the earth. But the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. Mm -hmm. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Isn't that so good? Isn't that the best thing you've ever read? So it's like a river, you know, it's like there, why, why do you and I get to live in a place as prosperous and comfortable as Provo in 2021? It's because for hundreds of years, there have been people, anonymous people who have spread their goodness, like the channels of a river through history, right? Mm -hmm. And their influence is incalculably diffusive. So we can't calculate it. This isn't mathematizable. We can't say, a person had X effect or B person had Y effect. This is uncalculable. Yeah. But it diffuses. It's, it's kind of everywhere, right? Their effect is everywhere. And why do we have it so good now? It's because of all these people who live hidden lives and rest in unvisited tombs. And this uh, nameless servant, you know, needs to be praised for being one such person. So yeah, that, that's one of my favorite paragraphs. Okay, well, uh, thank you for a great chat. I will see you you. tomorrow morning. Yeah, have a good day. Bye, you too. Bye. For the poem of the day, I wanted to read a few stanzas from this old poem, this old anonymous ballad called Tom of Bedlam. As we saw in Act 3, Tom, or poor Tom, is a colloquial name for a madman or a beggar. And this poem, we're not exactly sure when it was written, probably the the beginning of the 17th century, so it's almost contemporary with King Lear. We think it is. We think it was written around the same time. And you can tell it has a lot in common with the persona that Edgar adopts, this persona of this half-crazed, naked, wandering beggar. Bedlam, you know, if you're reading the footnotes to King Lear, you learn that Bedlam is a kind of abbreviation for the Bethlehem Royal Hospital, which is where uh, these kind of sick, mentally ill inmates. It was kind of a mental institution slash prison where they were all kept. I won't read the whole poem. It's quite long, but I'll read a few of my favorite parts. This is the ballad Tom O'Bedlam. 
From the hag and hungry goblin that into rags would rend ye, the spirit that stands by the naked man in the book of moons defend ye, that of your five sound senses you never be forsaken, nor wander from yourselves with Tom abroad to beg your bacon. While I do sing any food, any feeding, feeding, drink, or clothing, come dame or maid, be not afraid, poor Tom will injure nothing. The palsy plagues my pulses when I prig your pigs or pullen, your culvers take or matchless make, your chanticleer or sullen, what I want provent with Humphrey I sup, and when benighted I repose in palls with walking souls, yet never am affrighted. But I do sing, any food, any feeding, feeding, drink, or clothing, come dame or maid, be not afraid, poor Tom will injure nothing. With a host of furious fancies whereof I am commander, with a burning spear and a horse of air to the wilderness I wander, by a night of ghosts and shadows, I summoned am to tourney, Ten leagues beyond the wide world's end, methinks it is no journey. Yet will I sing, any food, any feeding, feeding, drink, or clothing, come dame or maid, be not afraid, poor Tom will injure nothing. And that's it for now. The next recording will be about Act 4, between me and a couple of you. So I'll let you know when that's ready to listen to. In the meantime, keep reading. Maybe read a little bit ahead if you can. Not too much ahead. Try to read a little bit ahead. And most of all, just enjoy the readings. Mm -hmm.